Broadcasting. We're going live. Are we live? We are live. People are filling in. We can just wait like, give it like 30 seconds for people to just fill in. We haven't done one of these in a few weeks. I I miss you guys. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, Well, you're good to go. Okay, great. Um, Okay, welcome to another Light Shed Live event. Um, Today we're happy to have... uh, Commissioner Robert McDowell, uh, former As Commissioner been. Robert McDowell, <laughs> serving, <laughs> appointed initially by President Bush and, and then by President Obama. Um, and also, just on a personal level, I'm glad to see that you're obviously healthy. I was following your, your tweets on Twitter. For those that don't know, um, you were in the hospital for a serious COVID, um, I guess, I don't know, knockdown, whatever it is. So glad to see that you're recovered and hopefully the whole country can get out of this mess. Um, also, we have Travis um, LeBlanc. He's vice chair of the cyber data privacy um, practice at Cooley, um, former enforcement bureau, former advisor to uh, Attorney General Kamala Harris, which we hope to talk a little bit about as well. Um, and also, I think most interestingly, given what's been happening in the last week or so, um, I think overall, um, was confirmed as a, one of the very few board members, <coughs> excuse me, of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Um, so I don't think many of us are know as much as we probably should about that board. So if you could just give us, you know, kind of a quick explanation of what the board does, what their authority is, and and um, and then we can kind of go from there. Sure, no problem. And thanks for, for having me here today. Uh, the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board is an independent agency within the executive branch that was created out of a recommendation from the 9-11 Commission uh, to um, ensure that the programs and activities of the executive branch that are used to Uh, protect the nation against terrorism. Um, Most people now think of these just more broadly as national security, that those programs are balancing the privacy and civil liberties uh, interests of U.S. persons. Uh, You know, we uh, conduct investigations, oversight investigations, and we also provide advice to the executive branch on those programs and activities. Most famously, uh, in the post-Snowden era, The board was very involved and has been very involved with programs by the National Security Agency to collect the call detail records of uh, hundreds of millions of people um, over over a number of years. Uh, We're doing a project right now in which we're looking at the use of uh, facial recognition technology and other biometrics by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, in connection with entry and exit to the United States. So typically, we're working with agencies within the intelligence community. Um, it's run by five board members, very much like the F, uh, FCC. All the board members are uh, presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed. Three uh, are members of the president's party, two are members of the minority uh, party at the time. Um, and there's an agency that works full time. One of the neat uh, aspects of this of being a board member on this agency is that the four non the, the chairperson is a full time employee. The other four members are part time, which allows me, for example, to continue in private practice at Cooley while at the same time uh, working at the board. It's a you know we have separate office, separate staff, um, you know separate computers. Uh, we can access any classified information uh, from there. We all have the uh, top secret SCI clearances to work on government programs and activities. So when you look at something like what happened in terms of just from a civil liberty standpoint, um, from a consumer um, you know, perspective, I guess one of the big topics this week was the president sort of using um, troops to do a photo op. And it, does that fall under sort of what your board looks at? Um, or is that beyond the scope of, of what the group of five of you examine? Interesting question. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, as I saw a tweet from the commissioner of CBP, which I think he's acting commissioner, as tends to be the case these days. Uh, <laughs> I am happy to say I'm not acting. I'm, in fact, <laughs> appointed and confirmed, one of the few. Um, <laughs> but but uh, he, he tweeted that he was proud that CBP agents were assisting in Washington, D.C. with 
uh, protection against domestic terrorists. You know, I, I think as soon as I saw that term domestic terrorism, uh, it, it immediately fell within our orbit. And so, you know, I would say of the view to the extent there's, I think there's little doubt that to the extent that anyone, and certainly the president has portrayed this as terrorism, you've seen the, um, uh, the, the allegations that have been made, he's made about the Antifa and uh, reclassifying it or designating, I should say, as a terrorist organization, fall squarely within the, the role of the board to be able to examine uh, the, those programs and activities and uh, in particular look at whether they're respecting privacy and civil liberties. So the answer to, my, the answer to your question is yes. And so do you have enforcement ability? Like, what is the ability for, like, what can the, the five of you as a group actually do? Is it recommend policy or can you actually affect actual change? So obviously we have the bully pulpit like any federal official would. Uh, we have right of access to any information from any federal government agency, um, whether or not it's classified. Uh, so we have we have access provisions, which allows us to uh, conduct an investigation. Uh, ultimately, we can make recommendations to the executive branch. If they refuse them, then we are obligated to report those to Congress um, that that they have refused. Uh, we can always make recommendations to Congress uh, with respect to legislation, with respect to uh, any other information they may use. We do not have the ability to stop a program. Uh, we do not have the ability to find the government uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we do have the ability to be transparent. Uh, and to put out information for the public's consumption to the extent it's classified, uh, the program that we're reviewing, uh, then the executive branch ultimately has to make the determination on declassification. But uh, we don't have the ability to stop it. Will you ask for more information on the riots? Like, is that a topic that you're digging into and asking for documentation on? We have a board meeting that's upcoming this week. Um, you know, much of the last board meeting we had, this was not an issue. Uh, so it'll be interesting to <laughs> yeah. see whether, whether we are able to have a, a, a conversation about this in the board meeting. So I can't predict as of right now, because as, as you well know, much of this has happened in the last week. And, um, you know, we... We, I know I'm exhausted. We, uh, I'm literally yeah. exhausted. And I, I thought COVID was the exhausting part uh, and the fear of COVID. And now I'm literally just, I'm running on fumes at this point. Yeah. I mean, one of the differences between the FCC and uh, the, the PCLOB is we're not subject to the Sunshine Act. And so while we do have meeting agendas and we do have meetings, they, they're not made public. Um, for for public consumption, we're not required to to do that. Although we could, so you can ask for other would. people's information, but they can't ask for yours. That's <laughs> I mean, technically, we can be FOIA. Um, you know, it, it FOIA still applies to us. Uh, but I, I say that only because uh, the while the agenda was set before the crisis, real the 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 rioting um, and protests uh, took place. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether we're able to discuss that at this meeting or whether that's something delayed for a future meeting. And then just to follow up specifically on uh, the president's use of, of troops for his photo op, is that is that something that would fall under um, your, uh, not jurisdiction, but um, would that be something you look at? You know, I, I'm doubtful about that one because, you know, we're really looking at the balance with privacy and civil liberties. So the privacy side um, 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 no, the civil liberty side, you might say yes, because of the way the, um, the park police uh, and others seem to have used excessive, uh, what, what appears to have been uh, force. I will say what appears to have been force. I won't say excessive, but what, what appears to have been force um, in what appears to have been an effort to protect the president um, and his, his security. That, you know, I'll put that, uh, that there. So uh, I don't have a view on that one, one way or the other, um, but it is an interesting question. Let's move on to cameras. I mean, we, there's companies that we look at, Motorola Solutions, Axon, that um, they talk about a future where uh, cameras, whether it's in a bodega or on, the, on a light, um, that can use facial recognition. First, we'll say like, oh, if we hear a gunshot, we can send cops there. And then it's going to be facial recognition that'll go into a database of people. Oh, there's the guy that we, we need to get. And I think they bought another company that looks at license plates that goes into a database. Um, given what's happened, I think there, there could be a um, surge of interest from local uh, police enforcement for these types of tools. 
Where do you think this all falls out um, in the balance with, with privacy, whether, whether this is how far can we go in terms of using technology um, you know, to help police enforcement um, do a more effective job? It's a very good question. You know, um, so uh, I used to work in the California Attorney General's office um, as well as in, in federal. And in, the, in California AG's office, one of the divisions that I oversaw was Criminal Justice Information Services, CEGIS which is the state's um, a, you know, a division that uh, essentially collects and stores all of the criminal history databases for the state of California. This includes the fingerprint databases, the DNA databases. It also um, includes like the mugshots, right, that you would see. And, and they would tell you if you spoke to them today that the state has been using facial recognition technology for a very long time. They'd say, go back way back to the wanted posters. Back in the day, that was a picture of someone. It was not sophisticated, but that was the beginning of the use of facial recognition. Photo lineups, right? Facial recognition that was taking place. Um, Automated license plate readers or ALPERS has been used for a number of of years. It's not facial recognition, but that is a type of- But there's also um, been pushback against the use of of some of those things, right? I mean, maybe it's just editorials and things like that, so- yeah, no, no, I'm going to answer the question. I was just okay. contextualizing. I was contextualizing that, that yep. they're already there, right? Understood. In other words, they're already thinking about how to use um, 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 facial recognition as a means of law enforcement. In the time, in the last few years, however, a number of cities and a number of states have considered legislation to ban state and local law enforcement from adopting facial recognition technology. Um, they're looking at ways to make it more transparent. I think the challenge that ultimately um, uh, legislatures uh, or, 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 or city councils, et cetera, will have to face is that facial recognition technology is coming into more use in the private sector, right? People are getting more comfortable with the idea of sharing their image with their device, or, you know, to get into the country a little bit faster through global entry. And that as more and more commercial applications of facial recognition technology are adopted in the marketplace, it's going to get harder and harder to preclude the government from using or buying the same technology that everyone else is using and getting comfortable with as as a day-to-day practice. Um, You know, I, I, I harbor real concerns about the way that images um, may be used to make determinations about criminal conduct or likelihood for doing you know, criminal conduct and other things. It's one thing to use facial recognition to open my phone. Okay, that, that, that is one thing. And me using it just to open my It is another thing to decide to send the police to my house to go in and conduct a search because someone saw an image that they thought looked like me. And so I think we have to think hard about how it is that we're going to ensure that facial recognition technology um, is not biased against certain communities of people. There is a real conversation about whether the algorithms are biased against people of color, for example. And, 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 And that's relevant because not all algorithms are created equal. We talk about facial recognition technology and we assume it's, it's sort of this monolithic thing. But actually, I think it was uh, NIST put out a study last year, a major study on facial recognition technology, where they looked at maybe, uh, you know, uh, dozens, dozens of the algorithms and rated each one of them on how accurate they were, on, 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 on how good they were. And some are really, really bad. And sometimes I think that the bad algorithms give a, a bad name to the good ones. That, right. that may be out there. And so we have to have a real conversation, not just about what state and local law enforcement do, but what kind of transparency there will be about the algorithms that are used in connection with facial recognition technology. And that conversation is, is, is not happening yet, but will need to happen before, at least in my view, uh, we can have any serious um, uh, use of this technology, this innovative uh, technology for purposes of restricting the civil liberties of people and for purposes of intruding into the privacy of U.S. citizens. So it sounds like it's something that you think there's an opportunity for that technology to be there with sufficient oversight, as opposed to some people's views where it's like, 
No, not at all. It's going to hurt our privacy to have, have any type of, of facial recognition integrated into our law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, you know, I believe facial recognition technology is here. Yeah. I believe that it is not leaving. Um, I think there are concerns that I would express today yep. about its use by, um, by law enforcement. Um, it's used, uh, you know, in making certain kinds of determinations as a result of it. Um, yeah. Those need to be addressed. And I think we need to think differently about transparency around it. But, but I don't think we're, it's just going to go away. I mean, that's the problem. I, I don't think it's about to, to disappear. I think the reality is that it is going to ultimately be more widespread. And dare I say, you know, we are entering a time where we, there will be more surveillance by cameras. It yep. will get, they will get smarter and yep. they will be used. And so when, when we have circumstances that are likely inevitable, yep. then I think the better, the, the, a wise approach is to begin to develop the notice and transparency and restrictions on use or collection, you know, and sharing restrictions on sharing, you know, beginning to put all of that in place so that there is a regulatory regime around the use of facial recognition. So just one other thing on cameras then is, is the body cameras that policemen are off uh, that are wearing. Obviously, there's always um, you see press stories about their ability to turn them on and off at different occasions. Do you see any kind of change? Can the feds mandate that they always have to remain on? Is this a local decision? Like, what is the future for for body cameras in terms of how they can they you can force an officer or not um, to use them a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I, look, you know, in this time that we're having right now um, of of really uh, scrutinizing. Uh, our criminal justice history in this country, our law enforcement uh, history in the country. Uh, what we've seen um, is that um, body cameras and cameras in general, actually, uh, are have have been a powerful um, way for um, accountability, law enforcement accountability um, in particular, and uh, accountability for accusers that might be wrongly accusing. Right? That's exactly right. Guys. Right. That, and probably those that have been rightly accused, it's actually become a, a, a source of, of accountability. Um, you know, I, I believe that um, the regulation there is most likely done at the state and local level, if we're talking about state law enforcement uh, or, 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 you know, local law enforcement. If it is the federal law enforcement, then that's something at the federal level. But, you know, I want to tie this in just for a moment into um, uh the president's executive order and uh, CDA 230, because I, I do see a connection between those two that uh, I, I think is quite relevant. You know, we live in a country where uh, the um, providers of, uh, of, 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 of social media um, are, are able to allow people to post videos that depict, you know, apparent or what appear to be law enforcement abuses. And we're able to do that because those uh, entities, those, 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 those tech companies are not held liable when that information is posted. You don't see that in other regimes in the world with state-owned media and others where you could post this kind of information. That has been available because of 230. And that, that we've, we've had this accountability that we're able to do with body camera, you know, images or, or camera images from the public because there isn't liability there. So if, if we remove that liability, though, and suddenly put in place um, a regime that holds um, uh, tech companies, social media companies, platforms uh, liable for that content, then we risk undermining and taking away that very accountability that you and I are, are, are talking about here because it would be critical, you know, of, 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 of law enforcement and may be perceived by some as being harassing or otherwise abusive to them. So that's um, a good pivot. That's a good pivot to 230, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. It's I, I a great pivot to 230. It is a great pivot to 230. I have one more on privacy for Travis. So could we just hold the thought on 230 while we're, we're sure. focused on, on Travis? Um, <laughs> I, I, and, and then we'll bring in Rob. Um, 
I'm having fun. This is great. This is great. Awesome. I, I was just curious about contact tracing um, because that's going to be such a big part of the COVID-19 um, response. And it seems like there's a real issue of, of safety versus privacy, which seems to fall um, under what, what you look at. H- how do you balance those two? And in certain countries, I think the government literally is following its citizens on, on, on apps um, to, to make sure um, that they know everyone they've been in contact with, so on and so forth. How is that going to play out in this country? And, um, and how do you strike the balance? Yeah. So a good question. I mean, I, I, I like to start this part of the conversation with always a recognition about the limitations of, of contact tracing or, you know, or, or, or other ways that you might monitor the public for COVID. I actually sent a letter this week to the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security uh, about a program that uh, the Transportation Security Administration is uh, apparently planning to do that would um, ensure that every air passenger who goes through an airport in the United States is subjected to thermal screening uh, to look at their, to see if they have a fever um, and determine, you know, and if you, if you do have a fever, uh, presumably, you know, presumably you would be denied the ability to board a flight on the assumption that you might, um, you might have COVID, uh, you might be infected with COVID. Um, there are real concerns about the efficacy of such a program that looks uh, at a fever and then ultimately concludes, aha, you might have uh, the coronavirus. Why? Well, there are numerous conditions that someone could have that have nothing to do with COVID-19 for which they might have a fever. Um, there are, you know, people who may take, uh, who are asymptomatic and have no fever at all, yet are infected with uh, COVID-19. You could take ibuprofen or aspirin to reduce um, your fever, you know, to get on a plane. And so there's a question about whether, you know, this kind of a program would create a false sense of security in the traveling public, you know, with respect to to flying. I think with, you know, contact tracing, we run into a lot of these same questions about efficacy um, and, and, and their effectiveness and how to use them the right way. The mere fact that your phone is near another person does not mean that you were even within two feet of the person, right? I walk in my neighborhood down the street. I'm sure I pass lots of people's homes and maybe my device connects to them. Um, You know, and so suddenly we have a phone that, uh, which has Bluetooth connections available to it, monitoring available to it, but it is not actually determining whether or not I spent any sufficient time with anyone um, at all, or even if that person is necessarily a family member. So I think we have to recognize the limitations on it. Uh, we need public health experts to be involved in, in ultimately assessing contact uh, tracing the information that's there. This is a public health issue that we're trying to solve, ultimately not a privacy issue that we're trying to solve. It's the privacy concern that comes from it, but we're really trying to solve a public health problem. Uh, there's when you no look doubt. At, but if you were to look at something like, you know, I just want to pull back to like Shanghai. And so if you look at like what is going on with like Disney over in Shanghai, Disneyland, everyone's got to flash their phone. Just to get into the theme park, you've got to flash your phone. You've got to have a green QR code, which means that phone hasn't been near someone who, you know, theoretically, if I had been near Robert the other day, I couldn't get into that theme park um, because he was a, a known COVID um, in uh, March, person. Not the other day, in March, I'm healthy. March, so you're <laughs> fine now. I'm He's just saying- healthy. It's out there. What are you talking about? He's immune. Uh, but but you see what I'm getting at is you, your argument would be that is more of an invasion of privacy because the end result doesn't really get you to the conclusion you want. And so it's not really giving you the answer. It's not giving you the right policy answer. Yeah, yeah. So one part of it would be not giving you the right policy answer. You know, I think another part of it is what this information is used for. You know, if it's used by, you know, Disney because they want to decide whether or not to allow someone in, that's one thing. If it's used to deny you access to a government building, if it's used to deny you the right to travel, if it's used to deny you access to health care, right, we can start going through a list of things. Then it becomes, sure. you know, oh, more, I, more problem. I get that. I just I get worried when, you know, to get into a U.S. theme park, um, you know, Legoland and it opened up the other day and Universal Studios is opening up, I think, tomorrow. And as long as you don't have a fever below 100.4, 
they're just letting everybody in, um, some of them not even with masks. And, you know, I guess it's that the question of we're seeing other countries obviously take a much more aggressive stance. Obviously, there's the privacy end, which Brandon's sort of, you know, angling towards. But it's trying to figure out what's the right balance between protecting the health of citizens versus enabling our privacy. And I guess that that's what we're struggling with is as large group events, whether it's a concert next summer or, you know, whenever things, these events start happening, where does, where does it cross the line in terms of invasion of privacy, at least in this country? Yeah, I don't foresee any, I mean, I could be wrong, you know, I I do not predict what um, a legislature will do. I don't foresee a legislature that is going to mandate uh, that every person um, you know, install a government-run app on their device to track whether or not uh, they have been around um, someone infected with the coronavirus. Um, I do foresee, uh, and we've already seen a, a couple states uh, that have um, encouraged uh, in, you know, people in their state to download certain apps for contact tracing. Um, you know, those, those have largely been disasters. Uh, in part because of the privacy failures around tracking and other things. Uh, We've seen Apple and Google that are developing a collaboration or partnership that's an opt-in. It's voluntary for you to uh, enroll in it. I think we're ultimately going to need some kind of way to do tracing uh, for public health reasons to determine who anyone who is ultimately uh, tests positive has been, has interacted with. We're ultimately going to need that because we have to be able to contain this in some way. This is a public health crisis. The question is, you know, how we go about doing that and whether we want to require people to carry something on them at all times that, you know, tracks who they've been around and their own status. And I don't foresee a requirement like that coming to the United States. What I do foresee is that there will be governments most likely at the state and local level more than the federal level because you know contract tracing and other um, such tactics to really work for public health has to be done at a smaller uh, level than the nationwide uh, version of it, at least in the, in the United States. I do foresee that they will develop, some of them may even develop their own apps and suggest local, uh, local people um, uh, install those and use them. I also see a little bit more probably mandatory reporting um, to pu- local public health authorities, maybe from uh, employers as well as doctors and others uh, to help track a little bit more and probably some regulations on commercial establishments that um, are designed to limit uh, c- uh, interactions between people um, that are there and may even require some amount of shutdown and cleaning You know, after there's been some kind of uh, some person there that was uh, infected with the the virus, but but I don't foresee us ending up China style with a mandatory app on every phone. Okay, let's shift to two thirty. Robert, are you there? Click, click, click. Hello. It's your time, Pavlovian. No, it's it's Travis's time too. But- uh, yeah, obviously Travis. Um, so maybe just a very quick kind of overview of of what two thirty is, but then hit things like. Is a legislative change of it okay? Um, like at Commerce, are they? We're assuming they're going to go along with this. And this is under Wilbur Ross. Who's actually making the rulemaking or the petition for rulemaking? What the rulemaking would look like? Rich has. We can screen share two thirty C one and two and two A B whatever it is that you know those two. If you we can put that up on the screen if that's yeah. We have that. We can put oh. that up on the screen when Hello, you get to that point. So if you see your picture go off, Rich can, can screen share. But give us a quick overview. Then we got a, a lot of questions we're going to hit and trying to understand like what comes next here. Sure. And Travis should feel free to jump in too. And by the way, I just spent a lot of money upgrading my Wi-Fi, which now means every two and a half minutes, there's a slight jitter. So please let me know if I need to repeat myself. <laughs> get okay. the repair here at some point. Anyway, um, so uh, Section 230 was added uh, in conference in 1996 as part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox in the House were the main proponents behind it. Um, long story behind it, which we don't is irrelevant um, at this point. But um, the by the plain language of it, it is uh, it was an effort to give uh, social media platforms or internet companies. Generic, you know, generically as they were understood in 1996, um, immunity uh, from 
um, certain liability that a newspaper might have. So um, in that, it was easier for people to post content on uh, your platform um, and you didn't want to or couldn't uh, possibly, especially back then as a fledgling nascent uh, industry, uh, devote the resources to curating um, and exercising editorial discretion, um, you didn't and you did not want to be held liable for that as Congress sort of foresaw some things that would be great for the internet. Audio was a big thing in, in 96, but it could be just opinion or information. Um, so there's that liability shield, and that's what really this is all about. Uh, it's actually less about free speech, um, and it was actually more about taking down um, content that could be offensive to children. Um, right. It's part of the legislative history. Actually, just earlier this morning, I was on the phone with Harold Furchcott Roth, who was a former FCC commissioner, but before that, he's a PhD economist, you probably know him, uh, and he was working for the House Energy and Commerce Committee at, at the time of, of 230's drafting, so he has the whole full history. So fast forward to May 28th of this year, um, the president, President Trump, issues uh, an executive order um, saying that the Department of Commerce through uh, NTIA, it's one of its offices, uh, is to file within 60 days, so by late July, um, a notice of proposed rulemaking with the FCC uh, for the FCC to determine the relationship between the two key provisions, and maybe this is the time to flash it up there. Rich, come uh, up. 230C, 1, and 2. And uh, 230C is known as the Good Samaritan uh, provision. Um, and this is what uh, gives them um, uh, social media platforms liability protection for things like defamation or other things. Um, 230C2A uh, talks about um, if, if an action is taken in good faith to uh, restrict access uh, or to take down content um, that could be considered obscene, lewd, all that stuff. But then there's this catch-all clause, otherwise objectionable, doesn't elaborate, right? Uh, objectionable to whom, who, who determines whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, right? So you could have pornography up there, in other words, was the thinking at the time. Pornography, unless it's obscene, and you know that when you see it, according to the Supreme Court, whatever that is, uh, could be taken down, right? So Facebook can take down um, porn-type uh, posts by people and not be, uh, but if it's up temporarily or if there's something defamatory or whatever, they're not going to be held liable. Right. Um, so this has definitely helped the proliferation of internet technologies and these platforms. Um, the, the legal issues here are interesting in that the, the FCC is never... And uh, I've asked a lot of people, and you know, I've, I've been in this business for 30 years, uh, including obviously since the 96 Act, and I was a commissioner for seven years. The commission has never claimed that it has um, the power to exercise anything under Section 230. Historically, it's all been litigated, right? This is, you go to court regarding Section 230. There isn't a regulatory uh, spinoff. There's not an agency that was given uh, ex ante or even ex post enforcement powers of, over Section 230. Um, so certainly the FCC, time and again, has explicitly said, we're not going to use 230, and sometimes in narrow contexts and sometimes in broader contexts. But the point being consistently has said, we're not using 230, nor do we think we have the power under 230 to do X or Y or whatever it was they were doing at the time. Um, so this is a case of first impression. Uh, it will be interesting to see what the FCC does with this notice of proposal. Well, first of all, what, what does commerce write in a petition for rulemaking? Right. And then what does the how does the FCC receive it? Uh, we had a virtual town hall with Commissioner Carr Cooley did on Monday uh, afternoon at one o'clock Eastern. And you can find it on our website. The, the video link is up there. Uh, and I tweeted it out to for those who are listening at McDowell tweet. I just tweeted it out yesterday. So the video link is there. Um, so. He's been a sort of proponent of what the president did. Um, and. Um, I asked him several follow-up questions um, as to how this is going to actually work. Uh, but under administrative law, one of the, the beauties of it is, first of all, the FCC could do nothing. Just because someone files a petition for rulemaking doesn't mean that FCC is compelled to do anything at all. But obviously, there's some politics behind this. It's election year, in case you didn't know. So I'm guessing the FCC will do something. But what is that something? 
Is it an advisory opinion? They're going to promulgate rules? Well, that'll go to court if there are rules. Rules on what basis? Um, and then what are the ramifications if, and I asked him this, if Joe Biden is elected president and you end up with a Chairman Starks or Chairman Rosenworcel uh, or someone else, you know, a Democratic commission, um, and you've handed them a new theory of power to regulate, um, what are they going to do? So all these questions remain to be seen. Um, but so who, does commerce have to, does commerce have to follow the president's instructions and who at commerce is going to be authoring that? And what would you suspect that they're going to ask for? Are they going to ask for an actual rulemaking or just an opinion on the text? Excellent question. So yeah, it's an executive order. So executive branch agencies are bound to do what the president has ordered. Uh, the people writing it will you know, the office has an acting head, Doug Kinkoff, um, Derek Coppin and some others. Um, I imagine they'll all be uh, working on it. Um, and probably with some communication, at least with the FCC, so that it's not a complete surprise, but also in, in concert with the White House, you know, it could be the National Economic Council uh, folks um, uh, who work under Larry Kudlow will probably have a bit of a say, uh, but I imagine the political shop as well. Uh, and, you know, I think we can, you know, uh, say what it is, which is this is, you know, a political nudge, right? So if if Twitter weren't tagging Trump's tweets, if, if Republicans didn't think that the Valley's platforms lean left, this wouldn't be happening. Um, but it is, you know, potentially tantamount, given that, to sort of a fairness doctrine for the internet, which is what they're doing here isn't specifically, according to the executive order, about speech. It's about removing or softening or weakening the liability shield that SMPs have, social media platforms. Um, so, but, you know, a court, if this does go to court, could look at it to say, but yeah, but why did you do that? It's to shape speech and political speech in particular, which is core protected speech. And after the Citizens United case, it is the law of the land, like it or not, that corporations have First Amendment rights, right? So Twitter can be an all left-leaning platform if it wants to be, and there's nothing stopping someone from creating a right-leaning Twitter, uh, right? Basically, can, can I add two additional thoughts to that question? Um, the first one is, you know, and the question being, um, who has to comply with the executive order? Um, first thought is recognizing that the FCC is an independent agency. So while an executive order can seek to compel the Department of Commerce, uh, it does not compel the FCC to do anything with it, uh, any more than right. any other petition that is filed before the FCC. Um, the second point is, you know, uh, I am a, a federal government uh, employee. Uh, every federal government uh, officer or employee takes an oath on day one to the Constitution of the United States. While they may receive an order from uh, the executive to do to perform a certain task, each and every employee has the right and has, has sworn that they will adhere to the Constitution first and foremost. So I think there is a real question about whether the, uh, the, 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 the officers at NTIA um, or at the FCC or other agencies might consider their constitutional duty to ultimately override an order from the president. Which will just end well, that, up in them getting fired, though. I well, mean, uh, but, but hold on. But hold on. So that sort of plays into what Michael Riley tweeted out right after this happened, where he tweeted out, you know, I, Commissioner O'Reilly tweeted out that he was concerned with what Twitter did. But on the other hand, he said he is an, I think, an ardent supporter of, of freedom of speech in the Constitution. And he kind of highlighted what you just said, Travis, that there is this inherent conflict in terms of the underlying duty. Right. This is and he, there have been a number of people in this administration that have resigned as a result of receiving requests that they thought were beyond the law. Um, you know, so is that their only option? Probably. You know, others have tried to be a whistleblower and see where that has gotten has gotten folks. So, you know, the president is the president, but I think we do have to recognize that anyone that says they had no choice is not telling the truth. They do have well, a choice. So real, so real quick, so when it comes to the First Amendment, yeah, you take an oath to uphold uh, the Constitution in these offices. I, in 2010, when I was a commissioner, part of my dissent on Julius Janikowski's open internet order was that 
it violated the First Amendment, that internet service providers have free speech rights. And in essence, the FCC was um, tram trampling on those. And I think the Title II order did as well. That's my personal opinion. Um, so, uh, but, you know, those who uh, may politically uh, like what they think the president is doing, which is, uh, or have political ambition, uh, their behavior will be probably shaped uh, accordingly, right? So, and, and by the way, if this ever gets appealed to the appellate courts, um, courts don't like to reach constitutional questions if they can decide it on statutory grounds, right? So you can flag those, which I did in my dissents many times, um, but on First Amendment grounds, well, there's a lot of First Amendment stuff at the FCC, but knowing that the appellate court probably was never going to reach that question. So it could begin and end with, does the FCC have any authority to promulgate a rule under Section 230? If indeed that's what they do. And then back to the other point, which is, yes, Commissioner O'Reilly is key here. So let's assume that the two Democrats don't support this. I mean, it's a safe assumption, but I don't want to speak for them. Um, and uh, so it's up to Pi and Carr to see what can they do about Mike. Um, and then Mike is up for reconfirmation right now. He's been renominated by the president. Uh, so he's a little bit vulnerable, but there's uh, there were Republicans and Democrats in the Senate who aren't crazy about this executive order either, right? So um, hopefully Mike can get confirmed uh, before this becomes a thing he has to vote on. Uh, but, but Robert, you know, even if the FCC were to take action and, and actually make rules, they have no enforcement ability of anything on this topic, correct? I mean, there's nothing in the FCC that gives them the ability to enforce this. So going back to what either you or Travis said, the only way that anything actually happens in terms of changing, like you'd have to sue Twitter or you'd have to sue Facebook in court, or you'd need Congress to actually change the law, correct? Like a rulemaking yeah. out of the FCC doesn't actually force anyone to do anything. I'll defer in a second to the former Enforcement Bureau Chief uh, here, Travis LeBlanc, uh, Enforcement Bureau Chief of the FCC. Um, but correct. So the FCC issues a rule. That gets appealed. People don't abide by it. How do they enforce it? I was at the commission in 08 when uh, Chairman Kevin Martin, I dissented against this too, uh, tried to enforce uh, the internet principles that Michael Powell put up. They weren't rules. They didn't go through a rulemaking process but he tried to enforce them as if they were rules. This is the Comcast BitTorrent uh, case, ultimately uh, by one in the appellate courts. Uh, because, but the FCC, you know, my point being, it can try to fashion or conjure up convoluted theories as to why it has enforcement authority over something. And it does, it's Republicans and Democrats both are guilty of this at times. So that creates market uncertainty for a time being. But at the end of the day, when it's really a Rube Goldberg kind of rickety um, construct of why you have enforcement authority. You're, you're right, uh, Rich, that it, I don't think it goes anywhere. At the end of the day, for your, for your viewers, uh, your friends here who are watching, I don't see how this stands. I tweeted that out legally as a matter of law. But that wouldn't stop the FCC from necessarily doing an order. I mean, there's certainly been Correct. situations where the FCC probably knows that they're going to lose in court and then just issues orders anyway. Correct. And, and there's a timely... Just straight for political reasons and that's it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want to throw the I, order out there, know that it'll never be enforced anyway, but you're kind of checking the box. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to give anyone a creative idea on how <laughs> we might be able to use some tooth here, so I'm not going to speculate. What I will say is, you know, there are a range of options available that are potentially available to the FCC, and it could be that they are able to satisfy the, you know, the wishes of the president by making something very light, something that just states the policy of the FCC. And, and that's all it is. And, and, and it's kind of out there and they check the box and everybody moves on and leaves it, it, and leaves it at that. But, but what is concerning, I think, to me, from a free speech perspective is, irrespective of whether or not there's any way for the FCC to ultimately fine a company uh, for or stop them from, uh, from their current uh, practices around content moderation. The very fact that a government agency suggests that there is a door to be opened for plaintiff's attorneys to go in and sue these tech companies, whether or not they're successful, is going to chill the, the, the content moderation that they are engaging in. And moreover, 
the risk that they have worldwide that comes from every other country in the world, where for decades now, uh, tech companies have gone in and said, look, we're not going to moderate content on our platform in Philippine, in the Philippines or in Russia or in China because we have First Amendment protections in the United States. We have 230 that limits it. That door is going to be closed. Suddenly, it's going to, you know, they're going to all rely upon this to say, start moderating everywhere else in the world. And I think that's ultimately going to reverberate back to the United States as well for a more aggressive um, moderation by, um, by, so, by, by these companies. So, so when you look at international, though, like we were thinking about like, let's just say a tweet under the Harms Act is taken down in the UK, like literally forced to take down in the UK. Is it only taken down in the UK or does it get taken down globally? Like, and I mean, it just seems like these are global companies and global content. Like, I don't understand how local law is going to impact these companies. Like, it just seems like it starts to get very challenging. So I think as going forward for any internet-based company, I wrote a lot about this when I was a commissioner and subsequently, I mean, you are seeing the balkanization of the internet, the, the when I spoke internationally, the countries from the Balkans didn't like it when I said that. But anyway, you know, this patchwork quilt of, um, of regulation of, of content. And, you know, when the Internet was born, we, I think we're all old enough to remember mid-90s. It was libertarian utopia. It was borderless. You know, the free flow of information across borders. Well, not so much anymore. Now you have data localization, um, country-specific laws in federalist-type setups. You might even have state-by-state laws like we're seeing with California, the California privacy law, for instance, that is, what do you do um, if you're a national company? Well, you're going to adhere, have your all of your uh, privacy policies adhere to the most restrictive, and that's right now it's probably California, right? So, but that's a little bit different from the GDPR in Europe. Uh, yet you, you, know, you want so um, you're going to see more data localization and more splintering, uh, and that's going to drive up costs and make it harder for information to flow freely and f- or for technology and apps to flow freely. Uh, you know, cross-border uh, digital trade is going to be harder, I think, going forward. Not easier. It's a one-way ratchet. It never gets easier. It only gets more regulated. And then if, if the president tweeted something that was ultimately taken down by Twitter or taken down by Facebook, but then, say, the New York Times were to publish that tweet, would they have to take it down also? How, how would that work? That is a very good question. You know, uh, uh, about, you know, I've been, I, I, I don't know if the commissioner has any thoughts on this. I haven't asked him about this, but I've been thinking about um, the, 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 the FCC's, you know, you know, you know, uh, regulation over radio and broadcast television over sort of, you know, the more traditional media and the extent to which if, when it comes to social media, we're concluding that you really can't, you know, you, you have to have this balance between um, different political views. Do you ultimately end up having to, you know, see some way to have that same balance in radio, you know, or in television broadcasts and print, you know, media as well? Um, I think the answer to your question, Brandon, is no, the New York Times would not have to refrain from publishing it. Um, unlike maybe in Europe, where there is a, you know, a right to be forgotten um, that's built into the GDPR that might play its way out differently with, um, uh, with a republication in the United States. I, I don't see. Can you expand on that? What do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, on the, on the, with the differences with Europe? And the- well, so Europe under GDPR, um, there is, and, and, and under, by the way, under California's uh, Consumer Privacy Act, there's this concept of a not only right of access to information about you that a company may have, but a right to ask them to delete it, right? In other words, they may have collected about you, but you can reach out to a California company subject to it right now and say, delete all the information that you have about me. It's a sort of way of saying I have a right to be forgotten. In other words, I don't want you to have anything. Europe has had this for a long time. They've had this right to be forgotten where you could go to Google and Google's gotten to some fights in France over this. And you could say, you know, remove this link or remove this about me. And Google would then have to have this 
you know, this the debate about, okay, do we only remove it from the French version of the website, right? Google.fr. Do we remove it from all the worldwide? And that's been a debate and has been highly covered over the last, you know, several years um, with regard to the right to be forgotten. And so I think, you know, anyone that were to reproduce the same information that you've already asked to be removed um, would be, you know, would be subject to GDPR as well. And, 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 and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I won't call myself an expert on it, but I think it would flow that you would have a right to have them remove it too. And, and the Otherwise flip side, it would undermine the right. And the flip side to what Travis is saying too, is if let's say hypothetically you were arrested for something in 1980, all right. And you want that expunged from the world. It's truthful. It's a matter of fact, but you want that to be forgotten. You grew up, whatever. You don't want your reputation besmirched by that. So you can try to tell internet companies, don't reveal that fact. That's a First Amendment problem, which is, it's a fact. They're not defaming you by saying you were arrested in 1980. So in Europe, they don't have a First Amendment, right? They, they just don't. Here we do. So the right to be forgotten in the GDPR context is probably unconstitutional because you're saying, well, no, I'm a reporter and I want to say that you were arrested in 1980 and you're telling me I can't do that. Um, that's a problem here in this country. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, you know, we could potentially have a change in the administration. Maybe, maybe not. Um, how do you feel? Maybe if you look back in terms of how antitrust has acted and the FCC has acted and what's been put in front of them, I think perhaps most interesting to start with is, um, you know, the Comcast uh, conditions under their transaction have now expired, obviously behavioral in nature. I'm not sure where you fall in the kind of behavioral versus structural and whether the one's better or not. Um, do you think Comcast could ever make a U.S. acquisition given some of this history that they've had with, with regulators and how they've acted under some of those behavioral conditions that they've um, so I, go ahead. Sorry. So I, I think, you know, if Trump's reelected, they may have an easier time. I'm going to assume Macon was on. Um, I think there's, you know, I know some other people in the antitrust division, there's some chatter internally about whether or not they should be uh, more friendly towards m They've been friendly in some contexts. Um, there's the rise of 5G. So if you're looking at the broadband connections, let's say, that compete against cable modem, uh, will 5G um, be the head-to-head -head competitor against that? Now, antitrust regulators on both the Republican side of the aisle and the Democrat don't like looking too far into the future. Sometimes Republican antitrust uh, division heads will look a little bit into the future, but they still don't look, like looking five years into the future, versus Democrats tend to want to look at the facts as they are today. And that's not pejorative. It's just that's not how it is. Um, so if 5G is thrown into the, the denominator for broadband, um, then I could see Comcast, I don't know if you're thinking of who they're buying, who, you're, who the target is you're contemplating, but um, I, well, I, would, I would like them to buy Charter, but Rich and I argue about this all the time and he says there's no way that that could ever happen and that, that Brian would never even attempt it because of the relationship he has with regulators. I just, I remember Brian telling me at the last INTX show, right? I remember the last INTX, whatever, the rebranded NCT, I remember Brian literally saying to a group of people I was with, I never, ever, ever want to go back in front of the commission. Yeah, I, so I had a box of Kleenex in my office during the Kevin Martin era, and uh, Brian Roberts would come in, and I'd offer my box of Kleenex to him. <laughs> so, um, so who knows, you know, um, and there are other components to the Comcast NBC Universal Empire, right? So content, I think, is pretty, pretty competitive, we can all agree, but it's that broadband pipe. Uh, so I think under a Biden administration, and maybe Travis can add more value here, but no, it's not going to get much bigger. Uh, I mean, it depends what they're buying, you know, but. Um, well, what if they traded off and said, you guys can merge, but then we'll just go back to Title II and regulate the whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, so Travis, that, yeah. Travis, would that pass? Yeah. <laughs> so look, I mean, here, you know, the, the, the Comcast NBCU conditions were still in effect when I was the enforcement chief. We were charged with enforcing them, with looking into um, issues around them. You know, those conditions were quite extensive. You know, I, I think that uh, the, the idea that there could be a transaction approved in the future with an extensive set of conditions seems viable to me. 
Um, You know, there are, I will tell you that there have been transactions that the FCC approved in the past where they said, you're going to agree to essentially the open internet rules as a condition of this, right? In other words, you're going to agree, even though, you know, they're not there. Might that be (laughs) a condition that they would seek again? You could imagine that that would, you know, be the case. I I suspect that it wouldn't be that hard for Comcast um, to to comply with those because as you know, in opposing the Title II order, they insisted that they would never do those things anyway. Um, and so, assume, yeah, I'm presuming that they're it's not, almost they're, not they're not throttling. <laughs> right. So why wouldn't you agree to a behavioral yeah, condition that you didn't really follow in the first place in order to get a transaction done? Yeah. And in the Comcast uh, NBCU, there were conditions like that. In AT&T Bell South, there were conditions kind of like that. Uh, so if, if they are merger conditions uh, versus um, uh, swearing fealty to all of Title II, maybe there's room. You know, I think if you were to ask most ISPs, large ISPs, whether they're cable or wireless or whatever, um, if they could make that issue go away and have some certainty, they would actually maybe opt in to the 2010 order, the Janikowski order. Um, I think it's the overall rate regulation specter hanging over, you know, those sort of Damocles that Title II brings, that's the problem. But if it's a merger condition that, that hordens that off, yeah, maybe, but then would that be used by a Biden FCC as a pretext to say, well, look, they just agreed to all this stuff. Let's just throw in all of Title II there just in case, because we like having that sort of Damocles swinging over their head. The threat so of so let, let's, uh, look, I think we could probably debate um, how competitive broadband is because of 5G and whether it really is a replacement. Um, and Walt and I probably could, you know, get out the boxing gloves and, and sort of debate what five years from now will look like. But there is no debating on the video side, right? Like the the video, you know, from the time you were at the commission, Robert, like, I, and, and um, you know, you, you think about just how much has changed. And is there any more debate? Like if you're not in the ISP business and you're just a pure multi-channel video distributor. Um, does market share even matter anymore? I mean, it just seems like the whole industry is going away and shifting to Netflix and Amazon and others. Yeah, it's, I mean, video marketplace is very competitive. Actually, I said that as a commissioner that we were already inching into a market-driven a la carte world, I called it. Um, so if you're only reselling content and you don't have another income stream, you're in trouble. Um, because it's commoditized, right? At this point. So you think if Dish and DirecTV tried to merge tomorrow, would anyone care or anyone push back on that at this point? You know, I think a classic antitrust regulator, and I'll shut up in a minute because I'm sure Travis wants to talk. I apologize, Travis. Um, a classic antitrust regulator would say that's two to one. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, if, if Trump is reelected, you know, maybe there's a, a better chance. You know, I, I'm reminded of XM Sirius. I was at the commission during that. I didn't see XM Sirius as two to one. I saw it as the audio market. I was too cheap to subscribe to either XM or Sirius. So, you know, I listened to free over the radio or pre-recorded in one form or another. There was lots of, there were a lot of audio uh, choices. It was substitutable in my view. So I think, um, you know, there's going to be a concern regarding rural areas where you don't have another MVPD choice. Um, If, unless 5G comes to you, in which case then, Maybe you do have a choice, uh, but I think if, a Biden, if Biden is elected, that that deal can't happen for sure. Okay, let's. let's I know we're kind of running short on time. Yeah, let's I just, got to jump on another call, but go ahead. I want to just, I'm one last one. Here. If you can just kind of spectrum is obviously a big issue. Um, just forget about C-Man and all that other stuff. Let's just focus on the the dish related items. You've got the designated entity, which is Spectrum, that's been sitting in Pi's drawer for two years now. I don't know if you're familiar with that issue, as well as the 12 gig, where you've got 500 megahertz of spectrum that they're sharing with SpaceX and AT&T and others that I think there's been petitions to try and get that use for terrestrial use. Um, just kind of thoughts on, is Pi done for this you know, season? And you know, in terms of the amount of spectrum, do you think you can get these last couple ones um, out uh, for use for, for, the, for the companies? Travis, you want me to? Answer if you want. Say, I feel like I'm talking too much. Travis, so I apologize. Um, so it, it's going to be hard to launch a new auction at this point. I think uh, there may be opportunities to identify new bands, especially federal you know, or government bands, uh, to auction going forward. I mean, you do have to 
except for the L band and full disclosure, I, I represent Iridium. Um, so Legato matter is a problem for us, but, um, but beyond that, he's produced more megahertz, you know, raw megahertz yep. of different bands than any other FCC and, and should be commended for that. Uh, but there's always more, you know, we're going to be hungry. Internet of things is we're going to gobble it all up. Uh, we need more spectrum and the federal government is the obvious uh, candidate. So, um, full disclosure, the firm does represent dish in litigation matters. I don't really do much regulatory okay. work for them, right. but, I, but the DE matter, um, yeah, it has been sitting there. It would be nice if it were resolved. Uh, I imagine there would be a push, uh, by the parties to get it resolved. Um, so we'll see, you know, could, yeah. could that be a post-election thing? I don't know. Uh, but it's not good just to have it sitting there unresolved. Right. Um, and then dish is busy with, um, the the post t-mobile work that they have to do right so there's a lot of work there too you both have been incredibly generous with your time uh, we really thank you both for joining us uh, on relatively we put this together over walt was you know put this together over the last week it was great to have both of you thank you so much stay safe uh, stay healthy and um I, we really appreciate you joining us today great thank, thank you. you thanks everyone All right, thanks, guys. take care